Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats. It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now, save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Trevor, this is why it's really hard for Marcel to edit, because she speaks quietly in a reasonable voice, and I shout. Because I'm angry at you. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Neil Barnholden. Good reading of punctuation, Neil. Today we're bringing you a delightfully Neil-filled movie episode about the sixth movie in the Harry Potter franchise, 2009's Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I've got a really good feeling about Hogwarts. I feel it's it's the place to be tonight. Do you know what I mean? No. Enjoying your classes, Harry? But before we get deep into discussion about this hilarious teen sex comedy romp around, let's. Re- <laughs> but before we get deep into discussion about this hilarious teen sex comedy romperoo, twenty minutes for now, they'll just be like rompa lompa doo doo doo. Rompa dompa ding dong. <laughs> You asked for it. Let's read IMDb's entirely inaccurate synopsis. As Harry Potter begins his sixth year at Hogwarts, he discovers an old book marked as the property of the Half-Blood Prince and begins to learn more about Lord Voldemort's dark past. That just doesn't sound right to me at all. There isn't a single reference to sexy teens in there. But don't worry, because you know what sexy teens love? Professor time with Marcel. Enjoying your classes, Harry? Oh, wow, that's so inappropriate. Sorry, Marcel, I'm going to get you fired. I do have a chili pepper on ratemyprofessor.com. Unsurprising. What you see before you, it's a curious little potion. Our increasingly inappropriately named discussion of adaptation theory and how the movies engage with and interpret the books. Hey Marcel, you want to tell us anything about adaptation theory? <laughs> no, at this point I feel like we've done a thorough job of covering the basics of adaptation theory and I trust us to henceforth just go full throttle in discussing how this movie differs from the book and why that is interesting, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like as a movie, this is less interesting than previous installments, but it's also a pretty good movie. Just how yeah. dare you. Just going to throw this out there. I don't like it as an adaptation quite as much as I think I liked the fifth movie as an adaptation. Um, and I don't like it quite as much as I like the coming adaptations mm-hmm. that we will see um, in like a year and a half, whenever it is that we get to them. Mm-hmm. But I do, I definitely like it more than one, two, three, or four. So yeah, yeah. Neil, we're in a fight. We're in a fight, Neil. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Neil made a very strong claim there. Like, his claim may have been almost the same as the one you just made, which is like, it's fine, it's just not as strong as some of the other ones. Um, which is like, like a totally reasonable thing to say. Why would um, you agree with me? So, I agree with both of you. You're both wrong. So... I think we want to start off by talking about a couple of the scenes that were added in that were really conspicuously added in and sort of talking through a little bit what their function is in the movie version. And there's three that really stuck out for me as sort of radical departures. And the first one is the opening of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Both that it opens at the end of the fifth year, right? It opens in that moment right after Sirius has died. And then when it moves forward, we're told by Dumbledore that Harry is in Little Whinging. But what he's actually in is some creepy subterranean (laughs) cafe that is entirely lit in green that does not look like the Little Whinging we've seen at all. It looks very, like, urban and gritty. Um, The Dursleys are entirely absent and the only explanation we get is Dumbledore telling Harry that he's being risky, mm-hmm. that he's living dangerously mm-hmm. this summer, and that he will not return to the Dursleys to collect his stuff. So it wasn't until you used the word urban and gritty and then talked about how Harry is living dangerously that... You realize I'm racist? No, I realized that that particular casting was like a really racialized move to cast the the woman who works mm-hmm. at the cafe as a black woman. Um because it was one of those things where at first I thought it was just an innocuous like, look, we're not racist. We have characters of color. Here's one, for example. But now that I'm thinking about it in those terms, it's actually a really like racially charged casting choice. And it's like super uncomfortable. I think that's true, actually, that it, it says something that the one person of color who gets a significant role in this movie has to signify the mundane urban reality Mm -hmm. uh, that that Harry is then taken out of for the entire rest of the movie. I do think it's quite interesting that this movie spends a lot of time at the beginning in the muggle world that isn't specifically connected to Harry, Mm -hmm. but that's just kind of an interesting choice. I think Hannah was making a point about the bridge. Yeah, 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 because the, um, as far as I recall, they do not specify the bridge in the book, right? It's just like, we know that a bridge has been destroyed. But the bridge that we actually see being destroyed at the beginning is a pretty, I, th- I believe it's called the Millennium Bridge. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong. Yeah, no, but right. yeah, it's like this really iconic London site. And it's part of that interesting opening, right? That rather than opening with the chapter from the Muggle Prime Minister's perspective that simply reports back to us what's been happening in the Muggle world and the attempts to cover it up, instead we're shown this stuff happening in a way that's actually pretty fucking hard to cover up, right? Like, we see the, the dark mark in the sky. We see a huge, major, like, London urban icon getting destroyed in front of tons of people, right? And so the stakes are higher right from the beginning, I think. Which makes the wacky teen sex comedy seem all the sillier. Yeah. yeah. So any theories for why the Dursleys aren't there? I feel like they just don't belong in what these movies are like anymore. The The movies are so grim at this mm-hmm. point. I mean, well, they spend about 70% of their time being grim and then 70% of their time being a wacky teen sex comedy. That's not how percentages work, Neil. Sometimes it's both. What can I say? There's an overlap. It's like a Venn diagram, okay? Just go with it. All right, so speaking of scenes that raise the stakes, right? There's another scene that they've added in the movie that also seems to really 
raise the stakes, which is the one I feel so much like I'm interviewing you guys right now. <laughs> like I have all of these questions and I'm like, why don't you, what do you think is happening in this scene? Is that why you nailed me to the wall and the math thing? Yep. It's gotcha journalism. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that scene, the scene where, like, it's Christmas at the borough, we have that in the book, mm-hmm. but it's all, like, sort of cozy and lovely, but instead Christmas in the borough, the fucking borough gets burned down, mm-hmm. which is, like, a pretty remarkable shift. Yeah, I find that scene really confusing because, on the one hand, I think it's a really beautiful and emotionally poignant scene. The running through the tall grass and the kind of swampy waters um, around the borough and the colors and having like it's dark and it's nighttime but all the tall grass is really lit in a kind of gold and it's really really chilling i really like the scene for its emotional impact but i don't understand the the point of it because the burrow does not get destroyed in the story spoiler alert spoiler alert commence obliviate in five Four, three, two, one. Sorry, spoiler, but it'll be back in the next movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm just not clear what its purpose is. It, to me, it feels like its only purpose is to demonstrate Ginny's incredible love for Harry because she's willing to literally put her life at risk in order mm-hmm. to make sure that he's okay. They run out in there together with all these Death Eaters. And then the Death Eaters just peace out. Feels to me like a threat, right? Like the Death Eaters burned down their house to show to them that they could burn down their house whenever they wanted, which is sort of this larger like way in which the movie is sort of setting this darker tone right from the beginning, being like shit has gotten very real at this point. But I also have a theory about reading that scene in general when we read it against what we were talking about in the novel which was a reading of Lupin as queer, Mm -hmm. about werewolfism as having this sort of subtext of HIV, Mm -hmm. the way in which Lupin and Tonk's relationship seems so Mm one-sided, and the way in which Fenrir, while we're told that he's particularly interested in biting children, we only ever see his attention directed towards little boys. Mm And so I actually feel like one of the big pieces of work that this scene in general is doing is writing all of that queer subtext out Mm -hmm. as much as it can, right? So we have Tonks and Lupin just are in a relationship. It's just like we don't even get any lead up or any tension around that. They're just together. And what's especially weird about the fact that it's just a given that Tonks and Lupin are together is that there's so much exposition in this movie in every other respect, but at no point are they like, we fell in love over this time period. Mm -hmm. It was a real struggle for us because Lupin has werewolfism and and is really reluctant Mm -hmm. to pass that on. None of that is there. It's completely absent. It's just a given that they are like deeply Uh in love and together. The movies really feel uh, like they are just relying on your idea of a kind of compulsory or standard heterosexual love story to fill in a lot of the blanks in a couple of situations. We were talking about this with the character of Ginny, and I assume we'll come back to it, but I do feel like with with Tonks and Lupin, it's especially glaring because of the queer subtext Mm -hmm. of the character for the most part that... Of course, you can imagine what Tonks and Lupin have been doing, but that's because you're just relying on a off-the-shelf cultural narrative of mm-hmm. why they're together and mm-hmm. what it all means. So it's kind of disappointing yeah. to see that, actually. It's so off-the-shelf. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's really sort of conspicuous how much you're expected to fill in the blanks there. Mm-hmm. 
But the other piece of it is that we see Fenrir come face to face with only one child in the entire movie, and it's Jenny. Their confrontation has a very lascivious feel to it, right? Like, Ginny's in her robe. Femur's got that, like, really low-cut, weird shirt. His chest is bared. His yeah. chest is bared, and he's, like, coming at her, and Harry has to step in front of him. And it's really, like, that entire everything going on with Lupin, with Fenrir, with werewolves, with queerness is all just, like, heterosexualized. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, I think, one of the big pieces of work that that scene is doing yeah mm-hmm. yeah and speaking of jenny the other weird added scene that i want to talk about was the f- super confusing room of requirement scene mm-hmm. where jenny's like we need to get rid of this book together i'll lead you up to the room of requirement by the hand and then you close your eyes i will hide the book then i'll kiss you while your eyes are closed and then maybe i was a ghost the whole time <laughs> i find that scene very strange for a lot of reasons i really don't know what's happening i feel like that whole scene is some kind of outgrowth of a screenwriter who thought oh the room of requirement that's that's where you can find things that you need so what if you use that in a relationship context which is like half clever but not really that clever is that one point where Ginny says you know, this is this is where you it's you also, come to find things. He only kissed Cho in the room of requirement too. Oh shoot! It's a place where you go to kiss people. Wait, <laughs> that that's so groaningly. Oh, it's it's the room of requirement. And... No, but you know what? No, we see people making out in the halls in this yeah. movie more than any other movie, right? So it's not just that that's the only place where you go to, like, make out. But I see what you're saying, Neil. It's like the implied somewhere is like, oh, yeah, it's the room of requirement. And when you're a teenager and you need a place to bone, you need a place to bone, you know? I think, yeah. I think Neil meant it more romantically than that. What? <laughs> Yeah, I, I did mean it more romantically, what? but I mean, you know, this being a Explain wacky teen sex me. comedy, we all know what's going on there. I mean, I think I think what he meant is like, like it's what Harry requires, like what, like emotionally. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> Not you, Neil. Sorry, the, the screenwriter. Fuck no, off, but, screenwriter. That's what I mean. It's It's like clever, Ugh. but the implications of it are so kind of groaningly obvious. In the episode about the book, we problematize this idea of looking at the history of Voldemort and taking for granted that he was always evil. And there was a lot of opportunity in the book to do that, assuming that our narrative perspective is is compromised, right? Mm-hmm. But in a film, and Neil, maybe you can explain with proper film language words than I can, <laughs> but um, your camera lens is supposed to be omniscient in a sense right yeah it's, it's yeah. very rarely associated with any particular character okay or a subjective experience okay so in that case i feel like there's a lot of troubling assumptions being made about voldemort like the movie is leaning in super hard to the idea that voldemort was always evil always from the get-go and we've got that one scene where slughorn says to harry that when slughorn knew voldemort as a boy he was just a really ambitious young smart boy but then later on he contradicts that and says you know you don't know what he was like 
And so it's just implicit that he was always, mm-hmm. or sorry, it's not implicit. It's stated yeah. that mm-hmm. he was always aggressive and terrifying and threatening. And that's why people did what he wanted, which is a very different Voldemort from what we got in the books, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, the memories that we get of people encountering a young Tom Riddle. For one thing, Tom Riddle is super crazy evil looking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, I'd say even more so than, than the teen Tom Riddle that we see in movie two. Mm-hmm. This young Tom Riddle is like, like super evil. And when he was a child, it was like, okay, he's a disturbed child. Like he's in a pretty shitty situation. I can kind of get that. And that sort of mirrors within the book how like guarded he is in the, the orphanage. And I believe you. She wants me looked at. I think I'm different. Well, perhaps they're right. I'm not mad. Hogwarts is not a place for mad people. Hogwarts is a school. A school of magic. But when he gets to Hogwarts, he sort of comes out of his shell and has mm-hmm. friends. And he's, you know, ambitious and smart. He's head boy. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, people like him. The teachers are charmed by him. And that the implication in the book is that people were, you know, genuinely fooled into like finding him charismatic and appealing. Whereas the way that's portrayed in the movie is that he is like magically manipulating people, mm-hmm. right? The scene, the memory, the real memory that Slughorn reveals, Slughorn is terrified of him and is revealing this information about the Horcruxes against his will mm-hmm. and looks scared. Like there are all of these closing shots on his eyes mm-hmm. and you see like he is terrified and doesn't want to be saying these things and Tom Riddle is somehow making him do it. Mm-hmm. And that's just a totally different version mm-hmm. of what Tom Riddle's origin story is. Yeah. yeah. And one that ties in much more to that sort of simplistic like, oh, he was just evil. He's just evil. He's just always a bad guy. Yeah, it really feels to me like a lot of it is in the performance of that actor. Some of it is that the camera treats him in a sort of somewhat, and his costuming and things are in a somewhat sinister manner. But I think the actor really plays that role as a character who is already evil. I can speak to snakes too. They find me. Whisper things. Is that normal for someone like me? Who, who, who's basically morally interchangeable with the Voldemort that we now know mm-hmm. is played by Ray Fiennes later, which totally endorses what I think you guys identified totally accurately as being really problematic in the books. It really leans hard into that. Like after Dumbledore and Harry watch the memory of the first time Dumbledore met him, Dumbledore says, you know, oh, if only I'd known that he was the most evil wizard. But in that memory it's totally inexplicable why he didn't figure that out because it's quite clear that he is in fact an astoundingly evil wizard or that he aspires to be. I can make bad things happen to people who are mean to me. I can make them hurt. If I want. Who are you? And that line, right? If only I had known, which brings us back to what we... I don't know if we ever actually talked about it in the podcast, but we were talking about it before the recording, which is the whole, if you could go back in time, would you kill Hitler as a baby question, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, if you believe that evil attaches to individuals in this essentialist way, then yeah, killing baby Hitler makes perfect sense, yeah. as does mm-hmm. killing Absolutely baby Voldemort, yeah. right? Yeah. So the scene where Harry goes and first tries to get Slughorn's memory from him, mm-hmm. you see Harry mirroring 
Tom mm-hmm. Riddle, right? Mm-hmm. Having a very similar conversation, quoting with him, there's shots that sort of mirror mm-hmm. the body language. So the movie's really asking you in that moment to compare Harry and Tom Riddle. And insofar as Tom Riddle is being constructed as always having been evil, Harry is being constructed as essentially good Mm -hmm. right as having that sort of somehow born into him and that is really emphasized in how much this movie focuses on um harry's relationship to his mother Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. that he is his mother's son in this movie Mm -hmm. and the whole you have her eyes thing comes up in a major way in this movie as a like this is who you are as a person this is what you're like as a person you know dumbledore tells him that his his greatest strength is his innate kindness, right? Which is like, like as much an intrinsic characteristic of him as Voldemort's evil. But like innate kindness is not uh, an attribute that I would have ever given Harry. Like it wouldn't have been on my top 10 list, no. for example. No, like he's, he's definitely a decent person. But like all of the evidence that we have leading up to this movie is that he's like a flawed person the way that most people are. Yeah. When Hermione praises him for being courageous at the end of the movie, and she says, oh, I've always admired your courage. I mean, that rings true to me in a way that mm-hmm. saying that he's unfailingly kind. I, uh, you know, I mean, he's not. He's a person, right? He nearly murdered Draco Malfoy in the bathroom in this movie. I know in the book, it's clearly unintentional. In the movie, he's shocked that he's done it. But the big difference between movie Harry and book Harry is that the movie Harry bolts Mm -hmm. as soon as Snape gets there and starts cleaning him up. Movie Harry pieces the fuck out. Whereas book Harry stays there. Snape says Potter don't move or something like that. And then the narrator of the book tells us that Harry wouldn't have like dreamt of leaving. Mm -hmm. He was never going to leave. That's a pretty significant difference. Like, if you've just mortally wounded someone, don't you think you would stay to make sure they're okay if you did it by accident? Yeah. Unfailingly kind is not Harry's primary characteristic in this movie at all, right? So so that does sort of bring us back to this, like, well, why the, the huge emphasis on Harry's similarity to his mother mm-hmm. in this movie, right? What is the point that they're trying to make? And Marcel, you said you had something you wanted to say about Francis the Fish. I really do. One of my complaints about this movie as an adaptation is that I feel like we really lose a lot of the exploration of Lily that we get in the book, which is what makes the book one of my favorites. So we lose that. But what we gain in its place is this really beautiful story that Slughorn tells about um, Francis the fish. I once had a fish. Francis is very dear to me. This this fish that he had had for years that was really dear to him. Um, he's He is telling Hagrid the story after Hagrid's dear friend, Aragog, the murderous spider, has died. And Slughorn is recounting how... It was a student who gave me Francis. He When he first got it, it was a bowl of water that had a single flower petal floating in it. Floating on the surface was a flower petal. As I watched, it sank just before it reached the bottom. It's transformed to a wee fish. It was beautiful magic, wondrous to behold. The flower petal had come from a lily. Your mother. And then that fish was with him until the day that Lily died, and that's when 
Francis disappeared and was gone forever, and that's how he knew that Lily was gone. The day I came downstairs, the day the bowl was empty, was the day your mother. It doesn't make up for the loss of that character development that I think Lily so deserved because for the entire book series it's all about how much harry is like his dad and how great harry's dad was and then it's like also you had a mother (laughs) here's some information about her because everyone claims to like her but we don't know why because no one ever talks about her so this lovely story about francis the fish doesn't doesn't uh, make up for that loss but it is one of those really beautiful things that i think the movie provides that i wish had been in the book and like this movie has a whole bunch of those things. I've talked about this in the in the past about how this movie's Harry is my favorite Harry because mm. he's funnier and sassier. And Francis the fish, Francis the fish. yeah, so beautiful. That's true. So one of the other things that I think that this movie does well as a film adaptation, I like the fact that. The Vanishing Cabinet is a subplot as opposed to a surprising reveal at the end. I think that it makes for a much more interesting storyline. We talked a little bit during the movie about how it really makes the movie in a lot of senses um, Malfoy's movie. We learn a lot. We get to see Malfoy, which I think is really important because the book really humanizes Malfoy in a lot of ways through this horrible ordeal that he's going through where he thinks that he's going to die. And so we get to see more of that and more of his stress and anxiety about being unable to perform this task. And we don't really get that in the book because all we know is that Malfoy's disappearing and he doesn't look well. So I like the dramatic irony of learning about the vanishing cabinet in Borgen and Burks, but like, oh, it's still there, blah, blah, blah. And Neil, you had made the point. Can you just make the point again about when Arthur Weasley describes what the vanishing cabinet does. <laughs> Arthur Weasley stops about five words short of giving the entire game away <laughs> because he says a vanishing cabinet can transport you pretty much anywhere. And if he had just said pretty much anywhere where there's another vanishing cabinet, I feel like it would be extremely obvious what's going on at that point, that they, yeah. that a tunnel has been created into the otherwise totally impassable yeah. Hogwarts. I, I just feel like it's it's necessary for us, the audience, especially if you don't recall the book, to know what's going on. But mm-hmm. honestly, if he had just kept rambling on a little bit more about what a vanishing cabinet is, I feel like it would become extremely obvious what's going on. Hey guys, you know what sexy teens these days are calling spin the bottle? That's right. It's the sorting ceremony. We'll explain the rules to you later, but in the meantime, let's talk about casting, performances, and how sexy these damn teens are. I still maintain that movie five was Harry's sexy movie, but this is definitely sexy Malfoy movie. Like, for sure. Oh, yeah. I agree with that briefly until I got a really good look at Malfoy's face. (laughs) I was like, oh, no, sexy's not quite the right word for what's going on with this guy here. Stylish Malfoy? Certainly, like, grown-up Malfoy. Yeah, what did, how did you describe his aesthetic? Uh, I described his aesthetic as being fascist. 
<laughs> right. He especially on the train at the beginning, the close cropped, light as possible, platinum blonde hair, mm-hmm. the black sort of uniform esque, highly tailored yeah. suit. Yeah. It's uh, not not the most subtle. I think they give Malfoy a lot of screen time in a really interesting way yeah. in this movie. And he's often in the background of scenes or often, you know, just within group shots. Like the camera doesn't do a lot of like closing in on Malfoy's face and being like, how yeah, does Malfoy yeah. feel? It's just like whatever scenes happening, Malfoy's sort of like in the background looking really freaked out about something or looking really worried or looking yeah. really distracted. And there's a lot of those like huge panning shots that sort of cross all around the castle and show you what a bunch of people are doing yeah. and Malfoy's always like losing his shit. He's up on the tower being tormented. Yeah. As an aside, the MVP of background reactions in this movie though is Neville. Especially in the scene with the slug club where they are having those Sundays uh, for dessert, mm-hmm. his reactions, if you just watch him in the background, are delightful. <laughs> he is great. When Ginny comes in and Harry stands up and it's inexplicable, there's this like little micro expression on Neville's face, which seems to me to be saying, should I be standing up? <laughs> like he sort of like, like pauses for a second and is like, uh, and then like goes back to eating a Sunday, which is really charming. <laughs> I love him. I love Neville. Uh, Neil, you suggested at the beginning that it's Dumbledore's movie and that this might be the movie where this particular portrayal of Dumbledore makes the most sense. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that more? Yeah, I I would say that uh, I think this is the one where what we've sort of deemed the the suspicious Dumbledore, where Mm -hmm. he seems to be up to something. He seems to have plans and be directing more of um harry's life than is apparent to harry on the surface i think this is the one where finally that performance syncs up to what the character is actually doing in the plot Mm -hmm. you know his his enlisting of harry to investigate slughorn's memories and gain this knowledge about tom riddle i mean in in this movie we're actually privy to dumbledore's scheme not all of it, but we're privy to one of his many interlocking schemes. <laughs> and and I think when he and Harry go to that cave to get that Horcrux, it, I mean, it, it just, it feels to me like that is what this Dumbledore mm-hmm. would be doing. We made fun of this in the earlier movies. Michael Gambon's Dumbledore gives off the impression that he is skulking around hatching yeah. schemes, but yeah. you never actually find out whether that's the case or not. And I think in this one, it's nice to find out that, yes, that is the case. <laughs> that, that, that weird scheme feels. Yes, he does tell students to befriend their professors as part of an elaborate scheme to access their hidden memories. I... Ah. <sighs> Like, the fact that he hasn't read the books still is just so apparent in this movie because uh, when they look at Horace Leghorn's real memory and then they come out of it and Dumbledore's, well, like, this is worse than I thought. They could be anything. What are they exactly? Could be anything. Most commonplace of objects. They could be tin cans, which is precisely the opposite. Because Book Dumbledore is like, no, I've been thinking about this and researching this for years. Mm. Michael Gambon, like, ad-libbed that scene? <laughs> I think so. I think he was just like, well, I don't, well, I don't know what we're going to do. And then, and then he, and then he, like, throws these two horcruxes that they have, like. Ring, for example. 
or the book. Like, he has two Horcruxes because he's got the diary that was the Horcrux and is destroyed. And he's got the ring that was the Horcrux that he destroyed, which is why he's got his blackened hand. So he knows that there's more than one. But then he's like, it could be seven. <laughs> Except that we know that there can't be seven because one of those pieces of Voldemort's soul has to be in his body. So, like, there's got just four more. It's worse than I thought. This is beyond anything I imagined. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, would you think there were three? Marcel, can we have more of you as Michael Gambon as Dumbledore? I just think the tin can thing. Uh, Something about um, Voldemort's small boat in your Dumbledore voice, please. Look at the size of this boat! (laughs) How are we going to get in this boat? It's so little. It's like a tiny boat just at the bottom of this, like, corpse-filled lake. And then little did he know that was his last last ride in a tiny boat. So sad. Okay. So another key thing that we need to talk about with the casting in this movie is the conspicuous either absence or silence of people of color. And this is the one where it's particularly obvious because we know that Lavender Brown, she's in some of the first movies at least, but she is black and does not have a speaking role. And then in this movie, when she becomes a main character who is going to talk a lot, all of a sudden she is recast as a white girl. And then meanwhile, we have two like textually important characters, Dean Thomas and Blaise Zabini, both of whom have like speaking roles in the book, yeah. <laughs> like who are actual characters in the book. But in the movie, uh, neither of them does Blaze say anything or does he just no. scoff? He, he, scoffs. he scoffs. He scoffs. And Dean does literally nothing. Dean just Dean's stands dead. about and is a thing that Ginny is dating. Uh, yeah. Dean is on a sub Neville level in Neville this movie. Right. Neville level. It's weird because I think when you adapt a book to a movie, absolutely, there have to be less characters who speak. There's just no way around it. But that's why it means so much when you decide which characters do speak and don't speak. Yeah. It's so noticeable with Blaze mm-hmm. in that scene yeah. where, in fact, we jump in in the middle of a conversation that he and Draco are having. And it, he just yeah. doesn't get to speak in the movie we're watching and also with dean because actually dean gets talked about quite frequently in this movie he just doesn't get to say anything we've got the scene when ron is asking harry what he thinks his sister sees in dean and they're in their beds it's clearly bedtime we're like they're all in the same dormitory so you, like i could only assume that dean is in the next bed listening to them talk about like what Ginny might find appealing about him <laughs> guys can you stop it this is really weird hannah mcgregor is dean thomas <laughs> we're so good at impressions marcel cosby <laughs> is dumbledore shit who are you gonna be uh oh, slughorn, slughorn oh yeah you sick slughorn i can't even remember my slughorn this guy uh this guy again this is the guy i think just the the recasting of Lavender Brown is so egregious in that sense because it's a character who is canonically established to be of color, a character who plays too important of a role in the plot to be cut out of the movie. Yeah. And the fact that she is recast as a white actress is just, it's so 
unambiguous <laughs> the the altering of that character uh yeah who again can't be can't be like blaze just sitting there not saying anything yeah, she's got a cock. Oh, man it that is i think that's a real extra textual low point of this series you said something about having a theory about the casting blunder yeah my theory was that because she is such a fatuous and stupid person that somebody was like well we can't have our only character of color with a speaking part be an idiot so let's just make her a white character so that people don't think we're racist that did not you did not succeed that was a failed attempt at not racism that's a really compelling reason to have more than one character of color (laughs) really compelling This is just an asterisk that we wanted to put in, but the actual actress who does play Lavender Brown, she she does a good job. I mean, I don't have a problem oh, with yeah. her. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of why I refer to it as something extra textual, yeah. because outside of this movie is where all the problem is. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, she's she does it fine. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah, no, she has some really solid comic moments. Yeah, that scene where she's where she's writing the heart on the yeah. window. And then she, like, breathes back all over it so that it will be, like, super visible. It's, yeah. those, like, she has some great scenes. Where like, she, she commits to her bits. Where she yeah. jumps on Ron's back in the background of that shot. That's great. That's really funny. Yep. She's very funny. Yeah. Or the faces that she's making at Ron across the room after they've broken up and she's really mad at him and she's, like, grinding the spoon into the table. Like, yeah. yep. she's good. She's solid. She's good. It's just, yeah, like you said, the extra textual business of her recasting is especially alongside the lack of speaking roles for other people of color is just conspicuous mm-hmm. okay speaking of our limited female characters we need to talk about jenny mm-hmm. all right this is the movie where jenny all of a sudden shows up as a major character and we are having like a real sort of like play-by-play reaction to jenny's character as the movie went through because at the beginning the movie has added in a bunch of like fun Ginny scenes and like put her into scenes that she's not in in the book and like sort of built her up as a character a little bit in order to make her cooler and it's like pretty effective in those opening scenes like she's pretty um engaging and fun as a character and then the second she and Harry start to get interested in each other she gets weird and specifically she gets weird in a really maternal way right so we have Harry at the borough for Christmas and Ginny like comes in and sits beside him and she's like I baked you a tart and then she feeds it to him yeah and that's weird ties his shoes yeah and then later on they meet on the landing and his shoes untied and she's like oh your shoes untied let me tie that for you and it's like this isn't a sexy thing I don't know who told you that this is a fun sexy move but this is not a fun, sexy move that you are doing here. It plays into the uh, Lily-related themes of this movie in a really, yeah, really like weird way. I mean, considering also the role that Mrs. Weasley plays in the movie, it's it's a really, really strange choice to have their romance take place in that register. As an aside... I every now and again see something occurring on the internet where someone makes the discovery that Ginny looks like Lily <gasps> and says something on the internet and then like a hundred people are like, oh my god! 
God, as though it's not the most obvious thing in the universe. <laughs> like, guys, read better. <laughs> Please. This movie does not make Ginny at all good enough or cool enough. It does like a really shitty job and instead is like, look at all these kindnesses that she provides for Harry, which is gross. Yeah. And it's just a lot of her like being inserted into scenes inexplicably, like in this way that feels really like forced. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and in a way that is constantly pulling attention away from that really central friendship that structures the movie, right? Like we mm-hmm. get very few meaningful interactions between Harry and his friends, comparatively mm-hmm. speaking, mm-hmm. in this movie. Like very little time, just like Harry and Ron and Hermione. Yeah. I mean, I think this really goes so directly to the question about adapting books to film. As I was saying, talking about the characters of color, there have to be less characters. There have to be less characters talking mm-hmm. in in the movie just to make it make sense. And I think with Ginny, they just made wrong choices up until Order of the Phoenix yeah. to make her role fairly small. And by then, it's it's too late. You can't fix this in Half-Blood Prince and suddenly make her go from being, you know, named Neville-level character to major love interest yeah. in the span of one movie. I think this is what it looks like. When you do that? This image of the director getting the new book and being like, well, fuck. <laughs> well, it's just, 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 now, now nothing makes sense. Maybe this is the same thing that was happening with Lavender, too, right? Because in the first five movies, the actress who plays Lavender doesn't speak, or at least doesn't speak in a meaningful way, because I don't know who that actor is. Like, I, I don't even remember. I can't picture her. I didn't even know that she was recast. Because I didn't know that she ever existed in the yeah, first place, yeah. right? And so it, like, the directors must have just been like, oh, all of a sudden this character is a super important person. Great. Okay. Uh. <laughs> it's. I, I think this is one of those things where the movies, there's a richness and a depth to the texts that the movies uh, just can't mm-hmm. capture. They can do they can do things, you know, sequences can become more compelling or characters' performances can be more compelling, mm-hmm. but you sure lose out on the complicated world of Hogwarts and yeah. the sort of elaborate nature of it. It just is so streamlined in so many ways. Yeah. yeah. Before we move on to um, talking briefly about our main trio, does anybody have any thoughts they wanted to add about Slughorn? Yeah. Jim Broadbent, he is so great at this role, but he's not the Slughorn that I pictured. He doesn't have a big mustache. He's not like jolly and fat. He doesn't go like belly first through doors. He makes that comment about how, like, he comes by the stuffing naturally, but he's not a particularly pudgy man. Like, it just, I don't... Yeah. I actually feel like the actor who plays Uncle Vernon would have been a better mm-hmm. a better slughorn. I think he would have been a perfect slughorn. I think he could get at that sort of, that, like, pompous jolliness really mm-hmm. effectively. Mm-hmm. But there is, I don't know, within the vocabulary of films, there is this way in which jovially fat can only be a little bit plump. Mm-hmm. Genuinely fat always has to be an actual villainous character so you, yeah. they couldn't possibly have an actually fat slughorn but i think he would have been a perfect slughorn oh, okay. yeah really and it's not like he was in this movie so they yeah. just he could have just recast it. <laughs> <laughs> like that thing you do in plays where you like double cast parts in order to like imply thematically yeah. like continuity yeah. between different characters if they had just had uncle vernon as slughorn in this that oh 
Wouldn't it be great if like in his life in Little Whinging, all of the main characters from Hogwarts were just like oh. mundane, like just neighbors and people like the Wizard, like of, the Oz Wizard of Oz is what I'm suggesting. Oh, <laughs> what I'm whoa. suggesting is Hogwarts is all a fever dream. Whoa. I want to start by talking briefly about Ron. I find Rupert Grint really unnerving in this movie because he got really muscular and he spends a lot of time wearing a tank top. And I find his very, very pale but muscular arms creepy in general his sort of like hulking pubescence freaks me out a little bit (laughs) you're welcome for that phrase hulking pubescence part of why he creeps me out in this this movie is that like so much of ron's plot is his sexual awakening in the book his sexual awakening is like premised on this like vindictive sort of prurient anger against the other people in his life whereas in the movie it's just like this really sort of teen sex romperoo where he's just like yeah i'm gonna sex lavender up But that scene, right, they've just finished the Quidditch tryouts and he did really great and he got that last score and then he sort of like, or that last save and he like poses and then the next shot is his crotch. Literally, the next shot is like him manspread on the couch and the shot sort of slowly backs up to encompass Hermione and Harry, but the shot stays centered on Ron's crotch. He's up on the couch and Harry and Hermione are like down on the ground so, like, it's, like, this triangle and right in the center, it's just his crotch. And it's, like, I don't, none of this is working for me. <laughs> this is all, I'm very uncomfortable about all of this. It really makes his broomstick waggling seem kind of subtle. Yeah. Understated. Yeah. You know, it's not, the yeah. camera isn't pointed directly at that. Yeah. What about Hermione? Uh, I feel like these movies are not holding up to my previous love of emma watson as hermione i like now that we're watching them and engaging with them critically i'm so much less impressed i mean she's great she's a great actress but i am not wowed by her in any way she's just good i don't know she's fine she doesn't really seem to have a role in this movie like she doesn't really seem to do anything yeah she's like tells harry that he's wrong about stuff and then disappears for huge amounts of time. Excuse me, I have to go for what? Cries about Ron. I happen to be his girlfriend. I happen to be his friend. These girls, they're going to kill me, Harry. Pretty uninteresting. I think, Hannah, your point about there not being as much of a focus on the main trio of friends is, is really accurate. I mean, the few scenes that they are in I, together are, are pretty good. But, I mean, yeah. I do really love the scene on the train... I joked about this at the time, so I'll joke about it again on the podcast. Harry is trying to explain his concerns, and Ron is too stupid to to care about it, and Hermione is too smart. It's a great scene, actually. Yeah. It's just great. Harry yeah. Harry's just frustrated by it. So Harry's like, yeah, clearly Draco is a Death Eater, and Ron is like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, Voldemort would never choose him to be a Death Eater. He's a teen. He's a sexy teen. And then Hermione says... Like, listen, I can't, I can't positively say like the way in which what the evidence that I viewed adds up to any particular <laughs> conclusion one way or the other. Like, it's so, yeah. it's like the opposite, opposite and equally useless responses. Yeah. Ron basically says, I don't really see that there's any suspicious things going on in the world right now. And Hermione says, how can we really know 
anything, though. It's ridiculous, but great. This is my favorite Harry because he's so sassy. So oh my sassy. God, he's so funny in this movie. His interaction with Slughorn when he's high on Felix Felicis is just aces. Harry! Sir, it's nearly nightfall. Surely you realize I can't allow you to go roaming the grounds by yourself. Well, then by all means, come along, sir. I feel like this movie has a lot more jokes than the other movies. And yeah, Harry has a lot of funny lines. He's so funny, right? Daniel Radcliffe just really amps up the uh, teen masculinity, you know? I don't know. I'm into it, obviously. Do you want to give us some audio of your favorite moment? So there's... I'm not very good at it, though. You're great at it. Not to mention the pincers. But his, but his, well then come along, sir. Which <laughs> is like, that's really, it's really like it's the pincers, the pincers, but also it's like, well, let's just go. Slughorn's <laughs> like, you should be in bed. He's like, well, I'm going to Hagrid. He's like, come on. Well, then by all means, come along, sir. What have you said, drunk Ringo? <laughs> I really like the interpretation of the, of the luck potion just making him high as shit. Like, that just being, like, what that looks like in the movie. I love his delivery of, I just feel it's the place to be. <laughs> you love that because it features centrally in that trailer. I feel it's it's the place to be tonight. Do you know what I mean? No. I, I do love it, yeah. actually. I think that trailer is so good. Yeah. We've had a lot of fun here today talking about how sexy these teens are but i for one would like to know how sexiness is produced as a filmic effect let's find out in madam malkin's props for all occasions our discussion of sets special effects props and the material production of wizard teen sexiness let's start by talking about the fact that the opening 20 minutes of this movie were 3d oh <laughs> Oh, man. You wouldn't immediately think of 2009 as being so easily historicized. <laughs> but man, that opening feels like 10 years on either side. And the opening of that movie would not look like that. Mm -mm. So much stuff flying at the screen. The screen, the camera's flying through stuff. It stops just short of having characters toss bags of chips directly at the camera. But it comes close. The scene where they tidy up the house that Slughorn has been living in. Oh man, so 2009. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I have a very distinct memory of going to see it. And I remember buying our tickets and them giving us 3D glasses or telling us that it was 3D, but then emphasizing it's only the first 30 minutes or whatever it is, yeah. but it's only that time. So after that, you can take off your glasses. And I remember I was still wearing my glasses after that point being like, Should I? Done? Is it done? You is there going to be something? To say, take <laughs> off your 3D glasses yeah. now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think at one point you're just like, I guess that's, I guess that's it, and then just slowly taking them off your face. Oh, man. One of the important scenes during that um, phantasmagoria of bad 3D effects <laughs> is our visit to the Weasleys wizard. wizard wheezes shop where we witness a clown 
I have a question. I have a question for you preeminent Harry Potter scholars and witch queens of all media. How do wizards know about clowns? Who told them about clowns? Where did they see clowns? What do they think clowns are? I think your question is better left as a rhetorical question. <laughs> I think if we try to answer it, we're going to lose the, the like glory that is pointing out the like nonsense. Every day I check J.K. Rowling's Twitter <laughs> to find out. <laughs> Can I, can I, I just remembered right now. So, cause, because we're talking about like the construction of sexiness in this, mm-hmm. in this film, really, I should have brought this up in our last segment, but I didn't think about it. I just want to like recognize the game of the actor who plays Cormac McLaggen for being a oh. total perv. Oh, <laughs> can we, can I like, can we just like oh, bow man. down to his ability to enact perviness oh, to an oh. exponential degree. <laughs> so I was originally doing something else. I think I was I was upholding the baby during the Sunday eating scene, the slug party scene, and something happened and everybody reacted. And I was like, what? I missed it. Marcel was like, sit down. I'm rewinding this. You have to stare at this. So I sat down and I still had the baby. We went back. And the scene is that they're all eating the Sundays. And like the thing has happened with like Jenny coming in late and Harry standing up and it being really awkward and Harry sitting down. And then you see Hermione sort of like looking at Harry like, we know what you're up to. And then Hermione looks across the table and sort of gets this look. And the camera moves across the table. And Cormac is looking at her. And he's like licking some sunday off his finger his pinky, yeah. off his pinky finger i, I can only and describe it as lascivious it's it lascivious and i screamed so loudly at that gesture that the baby started crying <laughs> whoops yeah that that actually does make me think. As long as we're on this Cormac, uh, t- uh, trigger, there there is something I wanted to talk about left over from the last episode that does relate to this movie. Which is say what you will about Cormac McLagan, there's not an implication that he is attempting to use a love potion to get about his desired yeah. effects. He just uses plain old patriarchal rape culture. Yeah, yeah. And I think sadly that puts him ahead of a couple of characters in this movie. I just wanted to say that I, I appreciated you guys' discussion of love potions. I actually think they're worse than what you're suggesting. I think they're they're worse than date rape drugs. I actually oh, think really? they're the fantasy equivalent of this sort of pickup artist belief that women are so mechanistic uh, that there are just actions that you can do to manipulate the free will of people because they are female in order to cause them to consent to have uh, sex with you or have a romantic relationship with you. I I actually think... What do you make of the fact that it's always women using them? Yeah, I, I think, like... That is so weird, but I think you could never do it the other way around. Yeah. I think it would just be it's so obvious yeah. and disturbing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's like the only thing that swerves away from that. But I think yeah. love potions are so noxious as a concept. Yeah. Is it, to me, that's what they represent. They're just the mm-hmm. sort of fantastic epitome of that idea. 
that women are so easily manipulable. Yeah. It is that thing, right, where because of the way that patriarchy functions and we don't believe that men can be sexually assaulted, mm-hmm. it's funny yeah. when we turn it around, whereas it would be horrifying. But at the same time, when we turn it around and make men the targets of sexual violence and it becomes funny, what that does is it implicitly... It, like, takes the thorns out of the actual act of sexual assault against women, right? Mm -hmm. So it, like, makes that... Mm -hmm. It makes rape culture not seem real. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it also, by making the humor be the incongruity or the exaggeration of it, it does also normalize women as being the subjects of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. It's so terrible. Yeah. Oh, man. You are correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you explain why every scene of this movie is only one color? Because this movie is Harry Potter and the Halftone Prince. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here all week. I'm here all week. Why it is that like there are all of these scenes that are like, this scene is green. This scene is blue. Ooh, now it's brown. Like there's more than two colors in the world. What's going on? I think you're pretty much right about it. It's just a very simple effect to create a mood in a certain scene. Um, I think this movie has some very strange, uh, or some not very strange, actually. It pulls it off pretty well, but some pretty sharp tonal shifts Mm -hmm. between scenes. Some scenes are actually just wacky comedy. Other scenes are quite dark and grim. The scenes of Dumbledore and Harry in the cave are almost a fairy tale. They almost take place in a totally fantastic mm-hmm. register. And I, I think the color is a pretty simplistic way to signal that the mood has shifted or that the mood has changed. I, I don't know that I can make anything specific out of the specific colors. Do you have thoughts about them? Green is for Voldemort. <laughs> Blue is for Malfoy. Like, the scenes are color-coded, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like... The Voldemort flashback scenes are green. Yeah. The, like, Malfoy, something that's a foot with Malfoy scenes are blue. Mm-hmm. The cave scene is black and white. Yeah. The, oh no, something ominous is happening, the Death Eaters are on their way scene mm-hmm. is brown. Right? So, they're, I mean, it's, yeah. like, pretty heavy-handed yeah. visual coding. Right? Yeah, it's very yeah. straightforward. Yeah. yeah. Personally, I think it's a way to deal with the fact that this movie has so many different tones yeah. happening that, I mean, shooting the scene in the cave in the same way that the slug club dinner scene yeah. is shot would be bizarre and disorienting. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, that's a good point. Because there are like radical shifts in tone from scene to scene and figuring out how to deal with those totally radical shifts, the like really heavy use of color might be a way of managing that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's simplistic, but but I think I can see why it's done. I don't know. Marcel, did you have thoughts about that? God, no. <laughs> you crazy? <laughs> you know what no. you have thoughts about the cave? Yeah, that's true. No, I, I, which is, which is a black and white scene, uh-huh. and it has a lot of crystals and shit, uh-huh. and a big lake and a little boat, little, boat. little tiny boat, a boat that Voldemort made, <laughs> the boat that Voldemort made in the cave that Voldemort built. <laughs> This is the boat that takes you to the Horcrux in the cave that Voldemort built. This is the chain attached to the boat that takes you to the Horcrux in the cave that Voldemort built. (laughs) (laughs) This is the shell inside the pedestal on the island in the lake in the cave that Voldemort built. Beautifully done. (laughs) Is there anything interestingly different about how this film is filmed? 
from the previous entries in the in the series well actually talking about that scene uh in the cave with the crystals i do actually think it's interesting because that is one of the few scenes that seems to take place totally separate from representing reality mm-hmm. in a visual way it reminds me more of something like lord of the rings in terms of being a very fantastical thing which is interesting to me because it makes the scene to me feel like it takes place in a different mode or register almost than the rest of the movie where there is usually some sort of reference point to point to reality um whatever it is something recognizable to us the audience and by that point it's kind of harry and dumbledore almost in a kind of fairy tale or a a lord of the rings sort of space so i mean that's pretty interesting i don't know that i noticed any filmic techniques in general the shots appeared to be of ordinary (laughs) length although actually i was going to say that there do seem to be more tracking shots that move around hogwarts Mm -hmm. um there's a couple of instances where the camera moves around the outside of hogwarts that i'm not sure we've seen as many of before Mm -hmm. so tracking shots generally establish a continuity of space it makes hogwarts Mm -hmm. seem like a more coherent space it also establishes that the characters um as we were talking about earlier it establishes where the characters are in relation to each other Mm -hmm. so you see that draco is uh inhabiting a space that's continuous with Lavender and uh, and Ron, which is weird. I mean, they never, they don't really interact that much. That's, yeah, that's yeah. really interesting because then those shots become a way of sort of establishing, cont- mm, ding, uh, establishing <laughs> continuity between the really radically different tones, yeah. right? So like the color is a way of yeah. sort of separating out the scenes, but then these tracking shots are a way of being like, even though these feel like radically different storylines, mm-hmm they're actually all happening in the same place in the same time. And that's like kind of a remarkable effect of this movie is because it's right at the breaking point before, you know, in the next one, they'll have left Hogwarts and everything's radically different. Mm -hmm. But this is right at that breaking point where like things have gotten really, really dark, but they're still at school. And so sort of dealing with that, like the weirdness of having a scene where it's like, oh, who do you like? And then a scene where it's like, I hope I can murder the headmaster because otherwise the Dark Lord's going to kill me. It's like, like, how do I reconcile these things happening at the same time? And the tracking shot sort of, I just did a tracking shot with my head. You can't see it, but it was really effective. Help us to deal with that. I got dizzy. So at the beginning of the movie, when we are in the muggle world and we see the Death Eaters like crashing into things and like destroying things, it's just like those um, streams of like jet black smoke flying around and we follow them around and then we go into diagon alley and smash some windows is that is that a tracking shot yeah yeah a tracking shot is just one that where rather than the camera being in a fixed position it it follows something around tracks, so that's it y- yes i mean it's it's actually literally called that because they used to have to lay tracks down and put the camera on the tracks so if you want to think about it that way, yeah, back back when cameras weighed the same as you know train engines and whatnot, so now they do it all with drones. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it's all with drones, and also I'm pretty sure a lot of these places aren't real. Shut right up, Neil. No, no, they're 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 real. You just have to get the Amazon Prime account in order to access those areas <laughs> with your drones, right? Like a regular Amazon account, the drones won't go to those areas. It's, it's, it's... Amazon Wizard Prime. Yeah.
So I, I also just wanted to say a quick thing, which is just that in the previous movie episode, I really boringly suggested something about the budget versus earnings of these movies. <laughs> and I meant... <laughs> I, I only want to correct this because I, I found out I was I was really misunderstanding the numbers. Um, I had suggested that Half-Blood Prince was the only installment of Harry Potter to not make its budget back domestically. Uh, that is not the case. It made roughly the same amount of money as all of the other Harry Potter movies, but it inexplicably cost $100 million more to make than the previous movies. And we were going to speculate wildly about why that might have been. Yeah. Let's skip the ones that make sense and just each name one that is ludicrous. Okay. They had to murder all those people for the cave scene. (laughs) (laughs) Murders don't come cheap, Marcel. (laughs) (laughs) Legal scenes. My theory is that Jim Broadbent demands $100 million and is hard as hell. Right, because he emulates Horace Slughorn. He goes yes. deep into method. Right, 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 right. So my theory is that uh, the Amazon Prime account was really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> get access to those drone film locations. Ah, oh, filmic production is such an interesting topic. Uh, maybe one day they'll release a special edition of Harry Potter that comes with a reproduction of the original budget. <laughs> we, but there's a, there's a preview on the on the DVD for this uh, Harry Potter movie for the special edition of Wizard of Oz, and in addition to a Wizard of Oz watch that you can have because we all know how important watches are to. The Wizard of Oz. There's a replica of the budget, so you can pretend to be an accountant in the 1930s. Neil, I want to point out the irony that you're making fun of anybody wanting the budget for a movie (laughs) shortly after having importantly clarified a point about the budget of this movie. I'm impervious to (laughs) that irony. Well, thanks so much for listening to episode 12 of Witch Please. You can stream the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca and check out our sick new aesthetic, courtesy of illustrator Victoria Evans and robot of our hearts, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? You can also subscribe to us on your podcatcher of choice. But the best way to get in touch with us is to tweet at us at ohwitchplease, where we will enthusiastically debate representations of fatness, the nature of human evil, and still, ongoingly, whether or not wizards wear trousers. (laughs) Never get tired of that subject. Here are some people who have been chatting with us lately. Nemo's Winter, Smaracuya, Aurora Birdie Alice, Short to the Point, Red or MC1R, V Pilar, Savannah Goyette, Katerina Hoven, R Must Die, Kiss Me Hardy, Liba Jen, who made fun of the way that I pronounced Hannah Arendt, <laughs> Flodot, Livia the Witch, Tasting Defeat, Heather L. Neal, After Three, Andrew Bretz, Debeckle, Karina Soros, Lloyd Pancakes, Sophie Biblio, Ms. Megan, Prashranth Ragu 2, My Book Jacket, Don't Be Stuck Up, Holly Dunn Design, The Show That Shall Not Be Named, which is an LA-based Harry Potter improv group. 
cool. I know. Tracy B, another great etc. The Typeset, Jessica Sporn, Janie Canuck, Or Who, Terry Lee McGarry, Nikta Trujillo, I probably said that wrong, Daniela Marriart, Sophie Biblio, The Audio Signal, Podcast Broadcast, BKS, SJ Connor, Matt Domville, Fibrous Ruth, Paula Gabrielis, Last Nora, Tricera Top, that's a great name. Physics Katie and Rather Be Dreamin', who sent us an amazing picture of the two of them at the Three Broomsticks. Jordan Ruth, E. Jarrett, Ace Carruthers, who still hasn't read the Harry Potter books. Alana, Uterp's Delight, Indigo Han, Spark Lily, C. Welski, Our Lady of Cats, Cash and Blue, Sensei Sensual, Kristen Morin, Pewter Wolf 13, Vivinia, Bailiensis and Ifia S. And a special shout out to longtime fans and friends Emily Hoven and Jason Purcell, who have both recently been accepted into prestigious graduate programs and will one day rule the world. Well, our next episode will almost definitely be a mini-sued, but who knows what it'll be about? Not us. Who can predict the future? But we'll figure it out. Don't worry. Until then, later, witches. I'm sorry, sing that for me. (laughs) Who put the dog in the doghouse? You did, baby, you did. Who put the cat in the cat house? You did, baby, you did. Who put your granny in the granny Granny house? house. You did, baby, you did. You did. I don't remember. Holy shit. Wow. Holy shit. I forgot that existed. Jesus. You're welcome.